The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine Podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, February the 18th on CBC Radio. For more than a million Palestinians fleeing death and destruction, it has all come down to Rafah. The city has become a last place of refuge. But with Israel's army poised to make an offensive, where can people go? And where will it take this conflict? That's where we're starting this morning. Then we will aim to brighten your Sunday and sharpen your wits with a new round of our monthly challenge, That's Puzzling. Later on, Alexei Navalny was seen as Russia's great hope for democratic reform. We'll have the latest on how his death is reverberating in Russia and its impact around the world. Plus, we'll round things out today with some beautiful live music and some difficult truths about the classical music world with Canadian violinist Lara St. John. It all starts right now on The Sunday Magazine. There's been much talking and calls to broker a deal, but there is still no breakthrough in the war between Israel and Hamas, which is now into its fifth month. Several countries are warning Israel not to carry out a large-scale ground offensive in Rafah, where more than a million displaced Palestinian civilians have taken shelter. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, along with his Australian and New Zealand counterparts, has called for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, saying an operation by the Israeli military in Rafah would be, quote, catastrophic. Yesterday, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, quote, whoever is telling us not to operate in Rafah is telling us to lose the war and says plans for a ground offensive continue. Greg Karlstrom is the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. Greg, it's nice to have you back with us. Good morning. Nice to be back. Rafah seems to be the focal point now. First off, can you, as best you can, just paint a picture of Rafah? What's it like there now? This is a city that in happier times was a proper city, but it was home to perhaps a couple of hundred thousand people surrounded by uh, some of Gaza's agricultural land, Mediterranean Sea on another side, and then the Egyptian border uh, to the, the south and west. It is now a city that has swollen to three or four times its pre-war size. Uh, sort of every available space in Rafah has been filled in now with with makeshift shelters, people uh, taking refuge there because it is 
thought to be the last relatively safe place in Gaza. So the population has uh, swollen to bursting, but people are now trying to decide how long it's going to be safe. And then if it no longer is, then where to flee. And where to flee is, is the big question. Where could they flee? Well, on the one side, again, you have the Egyptian border, and, and that is a closed, heavily militarized border. The Egyptians already had a, a large wall that they built there. Uh, they have been reinforcing their side of that border with uh, berms, putting tanks on the border, uh, trying to do everything they can to prevent Palestinians from crossing over into Egypt. But then the rest of Gaza, everything to the north of Rafah, uh, has been largely destroyed at this point in the northern half of the Strip. The estimates are that about 80% of the buildings uh, have been either destroyed or heavily damaged. So there really is no shelter left to go to there. Uh, there's Khan Yunus, which is the city immediately to the north of Rafah, but that is still uh, the site of very heavy fighting. The Israeli army expects to be fighting there for at least several more weeks. Uh, those are the choices, and, and none of them are good choices. In addition to having few choices about where to move, to 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 live, the other big challenge that continues uh for Palestinians in Gaza, is the question of food and, and clean water. We know that funding for the UN Relief Agency, UNRWA, has been put on hold by many countries, including Canada, after Israel accused some UNRWA workers of being involved in the October 7th attacks. To what extent are we now seeing, Greg, those that funding cut having a real impact on the ground? Well, when you speak to people from UNRWA, they say if those cuts aren't uh, reversed in short order... Uh, they could have to start suspending their operations by the end of the month. Now, you also talk to some diplomats who say that might be slightly exaggerated. If you look at the United States, for example, uh, one of the countries that froze its aid, uh, it had already sent $121 million to UNRWA in this fiscal year. They had one more small payment of about $300,000 outstanding. That has now been suspended, but they weren't planning to make any further payments until the summer. And the United States is the largest donor to UNRWA uh, it's much the same for Germany, which is its second largest country donor. So there is some money left to to fund at least some operations. It may have to prioritize. Uh, of course, it doesn't just operate in Gaza. It has programs in the West Bank, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. And so it may have to prioritize which of those programs to, to begin suspending. And I suspect that the priority uh, is going to be to keep the operations in Gaza going because it is so essential to keeping people alive. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and what the Israeli military has been doing um, these last number of days. So there was this Israeli raid in Rafah a few days ago, and it saw the rescue of two Israeli hostages. There are still dozens and dozens of people being kept hostage in Gaza by Hamas. How big a moment was that, well, of course, for the families of these hostages and for them? It was enormous. Um, but also for Prime Minister Netanyahu. It was a big moment for everyone in Israel. You had before that weeks and weeks of stories about how hostages had died in captivity in Gaza, how the army thought that uh, perhaps a quarter or a third of the those 130 or so hostages uh, were already dead. It had been all bad news around the hostages. Uh, and so this was a, a ray of light for Israelis, a bit of good news about the hostage situation. It was also good political news for the prime minister, not only because this is an obvious political win, but because it reinforced his argument or he tried to use it to reinforce his argument that the only way to get the hostages out uh, is through continued fighting, continued military pressure on Hamas. That's the argument that he has been making 
Not sure it's an argument, though, that's resonating, certainly with the families of the hostages or with uh, at least part of the broader Israeli public, where if you look at the numbers over the past almost five months now, uh, 110 hostages have been released through diplomacy, through a, a deal with Hamas back in November. Only three have been released through military action, the, the two men earlier this month and then uh, one female soldier back in October. And so, uh, again, certainly for the families, they think they're, they're obviously very happy uh, that this raid freed two of the hostages, but they continue to think the only way to get a significant number of them out is through some sort of diplomacy. Hmm. So as I mentioned, Netanyahu says he plans um, to move the military into um, Rafah, a large-scale ground offense of much of the world. Greg says it shouldn't or there needs to be a specific plan to protect um, the Palestinians who are now crammed in that area. How imminent do you think a large Israeli offensive on Rafah is on this Sunday morning? I don't think it's as imminent as Netanyahu's rhetoric would suggest, which is not to say I, I think it's not going to happen. I, I do think there's a, a decent chance of it happening. But you listen to Netanyahu and it seems like it's coming in a matter of days. You look at what's actually happening on the ground. Uh, the Israeli army is not repositioning forces to move them closer to Rafah. It's saying uh, it expects continued fighting in, in Khan Yunus for perhaps several weeks. Uh, it's not mobilizing reservists. In fact, it has demobilized many of the reservists that it called up after October 7th. So there are no signs that the army in operational terms is is moving forward with uh, preparations for an imminent ground offensive. I think there's likely to be a couple more weeks where along with, with this focus on Khan Yunus, which has been the focus for a while now, there's going to be a little more space for ongoing diplomacy in Egypt uh, these talks that are being mediated by the Egyptians and the Qataris to try to reach another hostage deal, uh, another short-term ceasefire. Those talks are going to go on for another week or two. Uh, I think if we get to Ramadan, to the start of the, the Muslim holy month of Ramadan in early March, and there hasn't been a hostage deal by then, uh, I think at that point the Israelis might might start to to look to go forward with the Rafah operation. Hmm. And to that latter point, if the Israelis go in, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu yesterday held this press conference, and he said something that I want to get your thoughts on. He said, "quote There's a lot of room to evacuate civilians from Rafah." Now, Greg, you said, "Look, there actually isn't if you look at what's left in Gaza." I, I guess I'm asking you to get into Netanyahu's brain a little bit. Like, what do you think he meant by that? Well, one thing that the Israelis have been talking about almost since the start of the war is the idea of setting up what they call a safe zone, or at least a safer zone, in a place called El Mawasi, which is a strip of coastline in southwestern Gaza. Uh, and there have been some talks in recent weeks between the Israelis and, and the Americans uh, about the possibility of setting up large-scale tent camps uh, in areas like that, trying to get the Egyptians to come in and organize those camps, trying to get uh, the Americans and Gulf states to pay for those camps. Uh, these are things that, again, the Israelis have been talking about for a while. But when you speak to people who've actually gone to Al Nawasi who've tried to seek shelter there, uh, they tell you that there is no shelter. It's very hard to find food. It's very hard to find medicine. It's very hard to get basic supplies there. That's the issue, trying to set up a, a large-scale refugee camp in what is still an ongoing conflict zone. It's obviously a very difficult undertaking. And trying to do it uh, if there is to be an offensive in Rafah, which would essentially cut off the main conduit for humanitarian aid into Gaza through the, the border crossing there, uh, it becomes even more complicated. We've seen in recent weeks Egypt sort of upping its security measures, um, including the construction of a new miles-long wall along its border with Gaza. Is that why Egypt is doing this in sort of preparation, like if there is this area in Gaza that 
tents are set up in that they don't want people to cross over? Like, what is Egypt? Why is Egypt doing this? I think they are trying to prepare for what they see as the worst case scenario. They have been adamant since the beginning of the war that they do not want uh, Palestinians from Gaza fleeing into Egypt. They they argue that would make them complicit in perhaps the displacement, the permanent displacement they fear of Palestinians from Gaza. They also have security concerns about uh, militants, perhaps members of Hamas or other groups uh, entering Egyptian territory. So. They have done everything that they can to keep Palestinians in Gaza. But there is a recognition uh, within the Egyptian government, the Egyptian army, that if the Israelis go into Rafah, if there is heavy fighting there, there might be large numbers of Palestinians who try to flee across the border. And if that happens, I don't think the Egyptian army is going to start shooting at people crossing the border. So they've been setting up uh, sort of a, a walled off area, as you say, where perhaps if in this worst case scenario, there are refugee flows into Egypt. Uh, they will be able to set up some kind of facilities there and keep people there and keep them from moving elsewhere in the country. Hmm. Egypt and Israel have had a peace treaty that survived for 45 years now. In the past week or so, Egyptian officials have suggested that they may void this treaty if Israel you know, goes on with the siege, of, uh, the ground offense of a large one on Rafah. Could this war in Gaza really bury that that peace treaty between Israel and Egypt? I think it is certainly the biggest challenge to that peace treaty uh, since it was signed, and, and it becomes a bigger and bigger challenge as the fighting draws closer to the Egyptian border. Do I think the Egyptians are completely going to void it and go back to a, a formal state of war with Israel or to non-recognition of Israel? Uh, no, I don't think they're going to go that far. But uh, certainly some level of, of severing diplomatic relations, pausing diplomatic relations, uh, I don't think that's hard to imagine. At the same time, they have an, on a security level, on a military level, uh, sort of a mutual interest in maintaining this relationship, trying to prevent the fighting in Gaza, spilling over into Egypt. Uh, they have worked together on counterterrorism, on border security, other issues in the past. And those remain very salient issues today for both the Israeli and Egyptian governments. This was never a warm peace treaty. There was never much love uh, amongst the Egyptian people for Israel. It was always something that took place at an elite level. Uh, and I think some of the logic behind that treaty is still intact, even if there is growing anger now within the Egyptian government at, at Israel's conduct. Hmm. There has, as I mentioned, uh, there's a lot of talk going on. There's there's politicians meeting in the, at the Munich Security Conference, which wraps up today. There are other negotiations and discussions going on in the Middle East in, in various uh, ways. Um and so let me ask you about Hamas, because it's a player at the table represented by Qatar. Uh, Netanyahu says Hamas, Hamas's demands for any kind of ceasefire are, in his words, delusional. Why won't Hamas budge with the safety and security of, you know, more than a million Palestinians in Rafah, many more in other places, hanging in the balance now? I think there is a growing split within the ranks of Hamas, and there have always been divisions within the movement. There are some people, uh, from what we've all heard, there are some people in Gaza within the Hamas leadership uh, who are open to at least some sort of a, a short-term pause in the fighting now to give some relief to the Palestinian public in Gaza, but also to give their own fighters a chance to, to regroup and uh, resupply. But there are, at the same time, leaders of Hamas outside of Gaza uh, who are concerned that if they agree to that short-term pause now without securing a permanent end to the war, without securing uh, the mass release of prisoners and, and the sorts of things that might 
boost their standing. They're concerned that Israel then in six weeks is going to resume the fighting, uh, mop up the last of the uh, Hamas battalions in Gaza and perhaps find the Hamas leadership in Gaza and deal the movement a really crippling blow. And, and so I think that's part of why they are unwilling to, to or, or resistant to making any sort of a deal right now is they have their eye on the future. They think that they want to remain a part of Palestinian politics. They want to remain a force in Palestinian politics. Uh, and they're worried that if they don't secure a permanent ceasefire, uh, this war is going to continue uh, until it gets to a point where they are no longer a, a salient actor. And Netanyahu says, even if there was a temporary ceasefire, like the military plans to go in um, to 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 much of Gaza afterwards. So you, it seems to me, from what you're saying, like there is this intractable intractable position on either side. So like, what's there to negotiate at this point? Well, when the Americans and Qataris and the Egyptians, all of these external powers who are trying to shepherd these negotiations, what they're hoping is they can get a short-term truce now, and then they can build on that. During the six weeks of the truce, they can perhaps tackle some more difficult issues about the future of Gaza, about Hamas maybe being willing to disarm or recognize Israel or things like that. And, and they're right in saying that there's no prospect for those sorts of further negotiations whilst there's still heavy fighting in Gaza. But all of those are going to be, even if there is a truce, all of those things are going to be a, a very difficult sell. So there is this, I think, unwarranted optimism on the part of the external mediators, perhaps because they have nothing else to, to try at this point. They have no other ideas. But both of the parties to this conflict are, are determined in their own ways uh, to continue the conflict until their, their demands are met. The other thing at play at least um, externally, as we see it, is the reports of a real rift between Prime Minister Netanyahu and U.S. President Joe Biden, who called the Israeli military actions in Gaza, quote, over the top. It's been reported that Biden in private refers to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in pretty, in pretty vulgar terms. That relationship has been key for many, many years. What does that rift or potential rift between these these two leaders say about what clout the U.S. has at this point? I have no doubt that President Biden is exasperated with Prime Minister Netanyahu. That has been the case for every Democratic president uh, who has sat in the White House going back to Bill Clinton in the 1990s. So uh, all of these stories that have been printed about how he's, he's lost patience with Netanyahu and he uses these crude terms to refer to him, I'm sure they're true. At the same time, the Biden administration continues to rule out, for example, any suspension of military aid to Israel. Uh, it continues to send weapons to Israel. There was a report just, uh, the other day in the Wall Street Journal that the White House is preparing a shipment of thousands of, of bombs that it's planning to send to Israel that would be used in any offensive in Rafah. So it's telling the Israelis, on the one hand, slow down, don't do this unless you have a plan to protect civilians. On the other hand, it's continuing to send money, it's continuing to send weapons. Uh, and I think as long as President Biden is not willing to, to go beyond words and actually take actions to pressure Israel, uh, all of his all of these leaks about how he's, he's fed up with, with Netanyahu are not going to make that much of a difference. The sort of longer term prospect is there have been reports that there might be some kind of a unilateral recognition of Western countries of Palestinian statehood today. Um, Netanyahu brought this decision to a vote in, cap, uh, in cabinet, a, a declar declaratory decision, it's called, um, which basically said, look, no, um, any agreement in the long term must be reached through direct negotiations between the Israelis and, and Palestinians. What is that 
sort of suggest to you about where the longer term conversations are in this? I think all of this talk of unilateral recognition, it would be a symbolic victory for Palestinians, for the Palestinian authority, most of all, it would give Mahmoud Abbas, the president, uh, something that he could point to, at least as a symbolic win for his people. But uh, I'm not sure how much any of that changes, at least in the short term. Palestine, call it a state or not, it would still be occupied by Israel. Uh, Its borders would still not be defined. It wouldn't have control over its own territory. It wouldn't meet any of the, the commonly accepted criteria for being a state. So uh, I think recognizing it as such doesn't really uh, advance the cause of, of trying to resolve the conflict. I think fundamentally we're in the same place that we have been for decades now, which is that the most that Israel is willing to offer the Palestinians as a state is something that's insufficient for the Palestinians to accept. And that has been the case, arguably, going back to the 1990s. That is still the case today. And barring major political change in in both of those polities. I'm not sure I see that uh, changing. Greg, thank you as always. Appreciate your analysis. Thank you. Greg Karlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist. This is Sunday Magazine on CBC Radio. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and we have reached the part of the show that will be... I guess it just all depends how it goes. It might just be a fun pastime that's not about competition at all. Or a nightmare. Or a nightmare. Yep. One or the other. Let's see which one it is. It is time to play That's Puzzling. Every month I take on a CBC colleague. You just heard his voice, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. But he is the man with nightmares. And I also take on a super smart listener in a series of word puzzles. Will we conquer those challenges? Will we vanquish our foes? Will we be able to sleep at night? Whew, I'm a woman of a certain age. I ain't sleeping at night very well anytime. This also depends on our vaguely evil puzzle master, Peter Brown. Hello, Peter. Too much information, I know. Hello, PR. Are you ready for some more puzzle-inspired insomnia? <laughs> this is what keeps me up at night. Oh my gosh, am I gonna? How am I gonna do it? That's puzzling. Can I just say before we reveal the CBC mystery guest, um, I've never been so terrified of one of my CBC colleagues in the that's puzzling ring because we work in words, Peter, as you know. That is the currency of journalism. Mm-hmm. But this guy, wordsmith. Let me just paint a quick picture of him. He walks around the CBC reading a book all the time while walking in front of his face. That's why he's so great at what he does. He's also super strange, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, it's those two things. I can walk without looking and I'm a weirdo. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I would call him a word slinger. I imagine him walking around with two books on holsters, ready to sling some puns. Yeah, they're both like those bathroom joke readers, though, so it's not like... <laughs> Let's introduce him. He is the co-host of As It Happens, the show's co-writer, creator of the show's legendary puns. It is none other than Chris Houghton. Hello, Chris. Hello. Hello, <laughs> Peter. Hello, Pia. <laughs> That's all he's got. That's all he's that's, got. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Did you want? I want a pun. That's what the people want. No, they, oh, this, this is what... they're not. I am not your performing monkey. Pia. All right. No, actually, I mean, I usually it's yeah, you it's usually a are. long and <laughs> grueling process to 
um, to to spit those things out hours and hours daily. Mm-hmm. Chris, yeah. after those hours and hours of coming up with puns and turns of phrase, uh, do you get into puzzles in your off time or do you have to switch mental gears and watch, I don't know, professional wrestling or reality TV or something? Well, I do. Actually, I got the Wordle in two today, everybody. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So I almost didn't show up having already scored a massive, a massive moral victory. Um, yeah, so I do the Wordle. I do the, all the, basically all the uh, New York Times word games. I used to play words with friends until that got, um, it got a little hairy. It became a problem. I would never, and I love playing Scrabble. I, I don't think I would ever play with Chris Howden. I think he would just, I, he would be, lay down these words, Peter, that like I wouldn't know and most people probably wouldn't know. And then he'd like let you challenge them and then I'd lose my turn. It would be bad. I feel like... Mm. I'm scared. That's all I'm saying. You you needn't be because first of all, I'm not that great at Scrabble, and secondly, I collapse under pressure. <laughs> great for a yeah. broadcaster. So, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I do all the shows from under the desk. You have lowered the expectations, Chris. Well done. Thank you. Our third player qualified for today's game by entering our "That's Puzzling" listener challenge. We ask you to invent a new word to describe. The neighbor who shovels their sidewalk right up to your property line and not one inch further. Shovels their sidewalk right up to the property line, not an inch further. The winning word is? Snobsessives. Snobsessives <laughs> or snobsessives. The listener who submitted that word is Nikki Reclitas in Ottawa. Hello, Nikki. Hello. Hello. How are you? I am well, thanks. Uh, first of all, Brilliant and useful word. I'm happy to say that my neighbors in Edmonton are not snobsessives. Is this something you have actually dealt with? Yeah, to an extent. I spent six years in the beautiful city of St. Catharines, which is known as the Garden City, where I went to medical school and did my residency. And people in St. Catharines are very, very serious about their lawns. Um, They bring their game. And I had wonderful neighbors who were meticulous about how they maintain their lawns and their driveways. So it came to me pretty quickly when I heard your riddle. Notice, Peter. Notice, Peter. She's talking about the good people of St. Catherine. She now lives in Ottawa and has left them (laughs) out by omission. So I don't know what Nikki's saying (laughs) there. I got my first job out of residency in Ottawa, and Ottawa is my hometown, so that's why I'm here now, where there's a lot more snow to be obsessive about. Chris, Pia, any thoughts on snobsessive? Yeah, I think I like the um, double pronunciation that you could say snobsessive. I mean, listen, I'm from Saskatchewan. There's been no snow in Toronto. There's a little bit falling falling these last couple of days, but or maybe a little bit more than a little bit, but we use snowblowers. <laughs> and if you and, and in fact, Peter, you are also from Saskatchewan. Even in yep. Toronto, and Toronto people don't like this, so I'm gonna admit something. We have a snowblower, and my husband does our whole court, and he is the hero of the street. So no one has to decide how far they're shoveling, because my husband does the whole street. Hero. Wow, you married up. <laughs> That's nice. That was a condition of who I was going to end up with. Like, are you, do you have a snowblower? Because I'm from Saskatchewan. Right, first thing. <laughs> Chris, are oh, we yeah. admiring the wordplay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, That would definitely pass on our show, I think. Ah. Um, and is superior to most things that uh, I come up with daily <laughs> that go on the radio. Yeah. So. Yeah. so players, we have established you are all accomplished. You are all nervous. You have all raised and lowered the expectations Chris, Nikki, Pia, 
Let's play That's Puzzling. We start today with a definition challenge. I'm going to give you a word and three possible definitions. Two of those definitions are real. One I have made up. Your challenge is to spot the lie. Again, two are real. One is fake. Spot the fake for one point. Now, I tried to make this one timely. It has been a few days now since we marked the most romantic slash cynically commercial day of the year, Valentine's Day. So I have a word that is <laughs> Valentine's adjacent. It's love adjacent. The word is luff, L-U-F-F, as in the throw pillows that say lift, laugh, luff. Uh, also the noise, the noise your dog makes when they're sleeping, luff, luff. So here are three definitions of the word luff, which is the fake. Is it in construction to lift an object using the jib of a crane? Is it in sailing to turn into the wind? Or is luff a kind of creeping thistle found in Germany and other parts of Western Europe? So your options are the crane lifting, the sailboat turning into the wind, or the German thistle, which is not a definition of the word luff. Nikki, we will turn to you first. Any thoughts? Yeah, my uh, to be honest, my first thought is luff is adjacent to the word bluff which mm. makes me think, sort of makes me think of a high, sharp cliff, which makes me think of turn into the wind. So you think that is a real one? That's my first thought, yes. Okay, we're looking for the one you think is not real. You've got the crane lifting, you've got turning into the wind, or you've got the creeping thistle in Germany and throughout Europe, which is not real. I would say construction is not real. Okay, Nikki thinks it is option A. Pia, what do you think? Hmm. 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 Yeah, I'm, this one uh, baffles me. First of all, I just want to say those live, laugh, luff pillows are the ones you get on discount to like the dollar store. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> the they misspell luff on there too. <laughs> um, okay, so I think like in construction, the crane, like I luffed it up. Like that sounds like a weird luff thing. Luff it. Hey, that sounds weird to me. But sailing, like turn luff, is that like turn left? But you don't turn left <laughs> in a boat. Like that's not how you talk about things. Oh, creeping thistle. That just like in Germany, that's sounds like i don't know it sounds like peter brown's just like oh i'll pick germany because i'm thinking of germany and to throw pia which is what he often does all that says i feel like the fake is oh god i don't know i'm totally going nikki chose the construction one i'm gonna choose i'm gonna you know she's a family doctor god bless the family doctors in this country by the way thanks for doing all the good work that you do Amen. you're overworked and all those things uh so i'm gonna go with my family doctor i have one nikki i'm not trying to ask you to be my family doctor i'm going with nikki i'm saying construction is a fake chris we have two votes for the construction not being the real definition of luff what do you think well i know from my time on the uh, borrowing the CBC yachts here um, <laughs> in Toronto, that luff is in fact a sailing term. Uh, so at least, at least, I'm quite certain that it is. I was below decks most of the time, um, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I heard someone say that. I and then see my thinking is that there is a jib on a sailboat, is my understanding. So I'm wondering if there's some kind of connection with the construction. So, unless you threw that into, uh, you threw everything into 
misguide me. So I'm just going to go with my, my gut on that one. So I am going to guess that it is the creeping thistle mm. in Germany, partly because, as Pia pointed out, of that slightly suspicious... Detail. Specific detail, yeah. The, the Germanicism was indeed a head fake. The fake is the creeping thistle... Whoa! Yes. Cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's review the score. Uh, Chris Houghton has won. Pia has not scored. Nikki has not scored. But God bless her is a family physician. Yeah. God bless Nikki. <laughs> so the score is one for Chris. And that's all the scoring for our second round today. We are playing a game called Monster Mashups. I have taken two words or phrases that have at least a syllable in common and mashed them together. So, for instance, if I asked you to mash up a term for directly with the word for purse, the answer would be first handbag. Directly is first hand, purse is handbag, so you get first handbag. Hints are available. Pia! You're up first. Your challenge is take a phrase for what we'll be marking at the end of this month, that thing, what we'll be marking at the end of this month, mash it up with AirPods. AirPods. Okay, so it's February. The end of this month, collectively, we will be marking a leap year. AirPods, leap year. AirPods are headphones. Um, earphones? Leap earphones? Very close. Not quite oh. ear, not quite earphones. Earbuds. Leap not earbuds. The, that is correct. P. Oh, nice. come on. That, earphones. I guess we don't call them we don't, headphones. Yeah, we don't, yeah. It sounded so good. Ear, I'm calling them earphones. So Pia is on the board. We turn now to Nikki. Nikki, yeah. mash up a word for payment and a word for clothes. C-L-O-T-H-E-S. A word for payment and a word for clothes. And you can get a hint if you want. Any thoughts? Uh, my first thought for payment is a check. And my first thought for clothes is threads or mm. duds. Um, can I have a clue for payment, please? Yes. Payment as in payment you would offer for finding a lost pet. Okay, so re-wardrobe. Exactly right, Nikki. Very good. I like the clear, quick decision-making. Very well done. Chris, our final mashup of this round goes to you. Your challenge is mash up a collection of photos and mementos, collection of photos and mementos, with a person who takes bets. Okay. Person who takes bets would be a bookie. Um... So now I just have to figure out the first part, a collection of photos and mementos. I mean, that's my guess about, about bookies. I don't, I don't know any. Um, <laughs> this is so also my assumed name because of uh, past experience. Um, I probably shouldn't be on the radio right now. Uh, okay. I'm, uh, I'm going to need a clue, Peter, on collection of photos and mementos. Yeah. Um, it starts out blank and you fill the pages with keepsakes or it starts out empty and you fill the pages with keepsakes. Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, no, I am stuck on this one. Nikki, are you making, I got this one noises? I have a thought. I think I'm going to have to give, I'm going to give this one away if, if you can get it. 
scrapbooky. That is correct. Nikki gets nice, the points. Nice work. I, yeah, I'm a little disappointed in myself. Scrapbooky. I was stuck. You know, I wouldn't have gotten that. I was stuck with album and then yeah, album that's, bookie. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was my problem too. Scrapbooky. That's good, Nikki. Well, I got it because you got you got bookie right away, mm-hmm. which well, I don't think I no would have gotten that right away. <laughs> <laughs> Just Oof. as long as we landed at the right answer. So the score right go. now. Anyone can still win, but Nikki is in the lead. Nikki has four points, Pia has two, and Chris has one. Losing to Pia. I feel like you gave up too easily on that one, Howard. I may have. I. This is a, uh, as I said, folding under pressure. This is a, <laughs> this is a Howden move. Classic Howden move. <laughs> like, I don't care. I'm done. No. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I didn't get it immediately. I'm out. Okay. We turn now to our final round of monster mashups. These puzzles will involve pop culture. Actors, singers, movies, etc. These are worth two points. Hints are available. These are audio clues. We will start with Chris, who I still believe in. Thank you. Chris, <laughs> this challenge involves two movies from 2023. We are challenging you to mash up this controversial film with a song from a re-released concert film. So... First, we want the film, then we want the song, the movie and the song. Here is your audio clue. You all right? Yeah, I've got a flat tire. Take my bike. Hey, that is so kind. Thank you. I'm sorry I don't know your name. I'm, uh, I'm Felix. Oliver. Oliver. <laughs> Oliver, I love you. I love yeah. I love you. All right, cheers, Ollie. <laughs> Well, uh, I immediately got your clue about the re-released concert film because I saw this and, and I highly recommend mm-hmm. to everyone that if you get a chance to go to the cinema and watch Stop Making Sense, uh, the Talking Heads movie, I, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's phenomenal. Um, and they've done something to the sound and whatever. So it's, uh, it's pretty mind-blowing. Uh, the controversial uh, movie is um, Saltburn. Ooh. And so the answer to your question is salt burning down the house. Wow. Absolutely cool. right, Chris. So Chris gets the point there. We turn now to Pia, who is in second place. Pia, you're going to mash up the names of these two actors. Ugh. The first is a Scottish actor in a major sci-fi franchise. The second oh. is in the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. We're looking for the names of these two actors. Here we go. There's more to life than your farm, Owen. He needs to see that. There's a whole galaxy out there. I'm asking you to leave us alone, Ben. It's my responsibility, Owen. Well, I'm his uncle. We talked about this. When the time comes, he must be trained. Like you trained his father? To begin with, this case should never have come to trial. The state has not produced one iota of medical evidence that the crime Tom Robertson is charged with never took place. Oh, here's here's the peek behind the curtain of Pia's brain. I um, am really bad with actors' names and song titles, so this is like hard for me. I know that's Atticus Fitch in mm-hmm. uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I think it was played by Gregory Peck. Is that right? I think that's right. Um, and then so the. 
first Scottish sci-fi franchise. I don't know. Is there a what's a Scottish Scottish actor no, in just, a sci-fi exactly. franchise? Exactly. <laughs> I don't okay. think there's any specifically specifically Scottish franchise. There probably is. <laughs> there there may be genre Scottish no offense, sci-fi. Send us an email. Okay, so something Greg, something Gregory. It has to match up with mash up with that. Oh God, Sir Gregory. <laughs> oh God, P- uh, it might P- the mashup Peter. might be more than one syllable, Pia. Oh, okay. So I'm going to take the hint for that first part because I definitely don't know that. Um, the actor in the Scottish, the Scottish actor in sci-fi franchise. Yeah. So he he's playing the young Obi-Wan Kenobi on the TV series. Oh, oh, that's that. You and McGregor. In- you and McGregor Peck. Gregory Peck. You and McGregory it. Peck. That is correct. And I will not deduct points for the accent. Oh my God. That's a terrible. That's the other thing I'm really bad at. Terrible accents. And offensive, frankly. And I'm sorry to my Scottish friends. So Nikki's about to get the last question. Chris has three points. Pia has four. Nikki has four. Whoever gets this will be the winner. But uh, Nikki will get first chance at it. This mashup involves two A list movie stars. She has been in two gigantic franchises and won an Oscar. He is a big star, and what we're about to hear is one of his most famous movie moments. So she has been in a couple big franchises. He is a big star in one of his biggest moments. Who are these actors for the win, Nikki? I want you to remember something, because a lot of times people get nice things and they start to think differently. We got here from hard work, patience, and humility. So I want to tell you, don't ever think that the world owes you anything, because it doesn't. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Is that ringing any bells, Nikki? The second set, like sort of the second piece reminds me of a scene in the matrix and i think in the matrix we had uh lawrence fishburne i honestly am not getting sort of anything come to mind from the first clip though would you like a hint about this uh nikki Uh, yes please so this actress was in x-men and also starred in another huge trilogy based on books for young adults Oh, is it Jennifer Lawrence? Jennifer Lawrence Fishburne? Yes, it is, Nikki. (gasps) Oh, awesome. Okay, cool. We both had it in here. We Uh, we were rooting for you, but we also were not. We're really happy for you. (laughs) I could feel the tension here in Edmonton. Nikki, you've probably never faced this kind of pressure in your life. (laughs) Never, never. No, this this was something else. So I hope you get you get on the blood pressure cuff soon. See how you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, better stay away from it right now. You know how people get the white coat hypertension. People also get the that's puzzling hypertension. So don't yes. trust Very your true. blood pressure reading right now. Uh, yes. Chris, thank you so much. You were within a hair, as was Pia. If Nikki had faltered, you two were waiting to pounce and claim the prize. Mm-hmm. It's true. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'll come back anytime. Um and uh, it's been uh, largely a pleasure, except for the parts where I failed. <laughs> Listen, I, you know, my favorite thing about Nikki's victory, and again, everyone has her own way of like celebrating victory. She was so like, 
I'm going to just say doctor, like like a big moment happened. Like you won that's puzzling. It's pretty big that's in true. terms of life we She delivered some bad news and, to both of us yep, and, and we she both was left the office keeled. feeling okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice bedside <Even> manner. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki, thank you so much for taking your time out from, from your important life-changing work. It was a delight to have you and congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, I had so much fun. I, my work is really important to me, but it's not often that I can describe it as fun. And I want to go back to school and learn about broadcasting, but uh, my partner Dave won't let me. So um, <laughs> thank you. It just Dave. seems like so much fun. But yes, thanks, for, thanks for the good time. Listen, Nikki, you learned everything you need to know by, about broadcasting by playing That's Puzzling. That's, that's it. That's, that's just true. the whole You now know more than I do. <laughs> It's been so, so much fun. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nikki. Take good care. That was easily the most nail-biting round we've played so far because it was clear everyone was standing by. Thank you, players. Thank you, Pia, Nikki, Chris, and thank you for playing at home. And that is That's Puzzling. And as always, Mr. Peter Brown, thank you for making up the puzzles, for stumping us, or at least trying to. Did okay this time, my friend. I think it'll be harder next time. My radio listening friends, we play That's Puzzling every month. And if you would like to throw your hat into the ring to play along on air for next month's edition, we're asking you to invent a word. So we're looking for a made-up word that describes the following. Realizing you care about the Oscars even though you haven't seen any of the movies. That would be me this year. Realizing you care about the Oscars even though you have not seen any of the movies you can email your made-up word to sunday at cbc.ca please put that's puzzling in the subject line and please include your phone number you have until the end of february 25th that is next sunday to put your word in contention and the winner will play in march and win a fantastic prize nikki chose the notebook so you could get one of those the sunday magazine notebook or you could take home a sunday magazine coffee mug. I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Shockwaves continue to ripple around the world following the announcement of the death of Alexei Navalny on Friday. The prominent Russian opposition figure died while serving a 19-year sentence in a maximum security prison near the Arctic Circle, according to the Russian Prison Service. Western leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Joe Biden, were quick to denounce Russian President Vladimir Putin. For its part, the Kremlin is denying any involvement in Navalny's death. Many observers are calling this a pivotal moment in Russia's modern history, with Navalny's killing a month before Russia's presidential elections, and as the war in Ukraine marks two years this week. Catherine Belton is a longtime reporter on Russia, currently for the Washington Post. She is also the author of Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. Catherine, good morning and welcome back to our show. Hi, thanks for having me on. 
It's nice to have you. Alexei Navalny um, was certainly the international face of the Russian opposition to President Vladimir Putin. Inside Russia, though, how has his death been received over the past couple of days? I think a lot of people are in shock. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, the people who know him have uh, diminished since he was jailed three years ago. Russian state propaganda is just so widespread. Uh, the Kremlin is trying to do the best they can to keep him from being mentioned on TV, in the news bulletins. There is a brief mention uh, that he died in prison, but they're not talking about him as being a politician. The move, the news just swiftly moves on to Russia's strategic victories in Ukraine and other uh, propaganda that the Kremlin would prefer the people hear about. But that said, there are uh, quite a lot of very brave individuals across Russian cities who are facing down uh, a very, very large police presence and trying to lay flowers in memory and in respect of Alexei Navalny. But we've already heard that more than 400 have been arrested over the weekend just for trying to lay down flowers. You have really excellent connections through your through your reporting. Um with members of Russia's elite, the business community and others. I'm wondering how that sort of group of people are reacting to Navalny's death. You talk about, you know, kind of regular Russians going out there on the street and being being arrested. Mm. But what about the elite? I think they're they're really shocked. This is another uh, line that's been crossed. I mean, how much further can you go? It's not clear. We know that Putin's political opponents have met uh, sticky and terrible ends in the past. There was Boris Nemtsov, who was shot dead on the street outside the Kremlin. Uh, but previously, when political opponents have been killed or have died mysteriously, it's always been in a way that sort of Putin can deny it. He could say it was a mafia hit or it wasn't anything to do with him. Even uh, the instances of, of Novichok uh, poisoning, he would try to deny. But when you have somebody who dies when they're essentially in the care of the state in prison, then this is another line that's been crossed. And it sends a very chilling signal, not just to the elite, but to anyone in Russia who wants to oppose the authorities. Because even though the prison sentences have got more and more draconian for uh, opposing uh, Putin and his war, uh, you can now face 15-year jail sentences. The belief was always that, okay, you do your time and then you get out. Hmm. But now another line has been crossed. And now it turns out, in fact, you can die in jail even though Putin can't deny that this that Navalny was under his care. He, he died in jail. We don't know how he died, but we do know that a day before he looked to be in fine spirits and he was joking with a judge in court, and it all seems very uh, strange indeed. The prison service has said apparently that Navalny lost consciousness after a walk and could not be mm. revived. To what extent, though, do you think we'll actually ever know the full truth of his death? You know, I was speaking to one uh, senior opposition politician who isn't in Russia anymore. He lives in exile in France. And he was saying, he said, look, we're not going to know uh, till the end of, until uh, after the end of, of Putin's rule. Uh, there's no way that we can find out. I mean, it's possible that Navalny was kept in such uh, severe conditions that his health just didn't hold out. We know that for the three years of his imprisonment, he was kept almost a whole year, 300 days in solitary confinement. And these are terrible prison conditions. This opposition politician 
I spoke to, he said he spent just 30 minutes in one of those solitary confinement cells. And he just said, it's terrible. It's torture. They tortured him hmm. for all that time. And it's possible he just couldn't uh, survive. But we, we just don't know. But all, like I said, all we do know is that a day before he seemed fine. And if um, authorities killed him, like if he didn't die from all of the torture mm. he was undergoing, what could be the possible motivation for having Navalny killed now? I'm afraid uh, that Putin, I think, has been acting with ever greater impunity and getting away with it. Um, and I wonder, too, whether, uh, you know, I've been speaking to analysts and other people in Moscow. They wonder, too, if this is somehow connected to the upcoming election in March. Navalny had continued his opposition even in prison. He'd been writing and posting things on social media. In January, he'd called on his supporters or anyone against the Putin regime uh, to come out on the day of the elections and gather at 12 noon in protest against the Putin regime. And it's possible the Moscow authorities just didn't want any disturbances. I mean, we don't know how many people would have come out because, you know, the fear of jail sentences and getting beaten by the police is, is very high. But it's possible the authorities just didn't want to leave anything to chance. And this one analyst I spoke to, he said, no matter how soberly you look at this, it's like, I can't get this connection out of my head. It's there. And it's also the case that he was uh, transferred uh, from his normal prison, which was already pretty severe, uh, to far beyond the Arctic Circle, uh, after he and his uh, team had arranged to place billboards in Moscow that looked very kind of normal, standard, happy new year billboards uh, for the holidays. But they also contained a QR code. And when you clicked on it, it took you to a website which was called Russia Without Putin. And they were calling on Russians uh, to protest against Putin and vote against him. So it's possible that's that was the first step. First, they removed him to the far north. And now they've gotten rid of him because he refused to back down. He was determined, Navalny, as you yes. say, and give all those examples there. But, you know, I only know him from watching a documentary about him and, mm -hmm. you know, the few mm -hmm. brief glimpses we got of him in prison and his, his wife, now his widow, talking about him. But he, he, beyond sort of the practical things that he did, he seemed to have this, I don't know, charisma, Catherine Belton, that really galvanized people. Yeah, he was amazing. I mean, I still get chills down my spine now when I remember uh, some of the demonstrations that he led when Russia was a very, very different place. Like in 2011, when Putin had just announced he was returning to power after the more liberal presidency of his junior guy, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, and then tens of thousands of Muscovites uh, poured onto the streets and Navalny really was a figure to be reckoned with because he brought together not just liberals but everyday people on the street who were just fed up of returning to, to Putin and felt that they'd been duped. They thought they had a different future ahead of them. And he was, like you say, he's a very galvanizing force and he almost hypnotized the people in leading chants and sort of like his... His standard chant was Putin as a thief, but he really knew how to raise the crowds. Mm. And so with him gone, with Navalny now gone, walk us through what the opposition landscape looks like inside Russia. Well, it's almost completely devastated. 
Um, you know, uh, there are two other opposition leaders who are in jail still. Uh, that's Vladimir Karamorza and Ilyashin. Ilya Yashin and the, what happened to Navalny must be terrifying for them because it means the same could happen to them. They could disappear or die at any moment. So, you know, that's going to send a very uh, scary signal to them. And for the rest of the opposition, I mean, what do they do? There's no organization now. There's there's no there are no newspapers they can turn to. There there are no uh, you know there's there's just no organization. Everything has been broken up. Putin's grip is is so firm. And as we've seen, you can get arrested just for laying flowers. And I think people now are just either just very depressed and disappointed because they see no outlet and they know that they face the risk of, of jail and, and now death for opposing the regime. And there's also a great deal of apathy. And yes, the people have bought into the other people have bought into the Kremlin propaganda and they see Russia's war in Ukraine now as a righteous war against the West. Putin has tapped into this feeling of, of national humiliation since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and I'm afraid there's a lot of rednecks and prejudiced people who think that Russia is standing up against the West. So the chill that Putin wanted to send out with the death of Navalny, or at least the allegation that he was behind this, um, has been effective. I'm afraid so. I mean, I guess we, we don't know. We're yet to see. I mean, it's possible maybe somehow people can get organized, but uh, judging from what we've seen over the weekend, it's it's not very encouraging because if you compare it to uh, the level of protest three years ago when Navalny was arrested on his return to Russia after he was recovering from being poisoned, uh, you know, he knew he could face arrest, he knew he could face death, and yet he still returned. He was arrested. Um, but then uh, there were thousands of people on the streets protesting his arrest and people were saying that these are seen uh, similar to uh, perhaps those of, of Belarus a year before, which nearly toppled the, the Belarusian president. And um, what we see now is is nowhere near uh, that level of, of, of protest. Uh, everything is pretty muted. Most people who are really opposed to the regime have had to leave. I know it's only been a couple of days. And, and as a reporter who covers Russia and covered Navalny, I, I know you're still digesting all of this. But as mm. you think about... Alexei Navalny's life. Um, what do you what What do you think he, you will remember about him? What do you want him to be remembered for? I think he will still be a symbol of incredible bravery, and that legacy will never disappear because you know he and a few other individuals uh, have known that they risk death and yet they've continued and continued to be determined to fight and speak openly against the regime. And I don't think no matter what Putin does, that image and that legacy will be impossible to turn down. And I'm sure at some moment it will come back to bite him. But at the moment, uh, Putin is, is riding high. He just secured a victory in Ukraine because the US Congress is, is just sitting on its hands and it's paralyzed and unable to agree a further aid package for Ukraine. Uh, Putin's regime will be wobbly if Ukraine is able to inflict uh, military defeat, not some kind of military defeat, not, I mean, if it's able to win back some more territory 
from Russia, uh, then Putin's legitimacy will be tarnished. You'll get members of the elite speaking again about his replacement mm. as they did before the counteroffensive when they were worried about the counteroffensive. But as soon as it became apparent that the West hadn't armed Ukraine adequately enough, they think they're winning. They think they can take on the West. Mm. They think the West is weak. They're sharks and they want to be on the winning side. So actually, they don't really care. So they'll support Putin for as long as he's winning. And right now, the U.S. is enabling him to do so. Catherine Belton, really appreciate hearing from you this morning. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Catherine Belton writes about Russia for The Washington Post. Well, the death of Alexei Navalny was announced on Friday, just as many top politicians from around the world were gathering for a key international security policy conference. One of the people attending the Munich Security Conference was Yulia Navalnaya, the wife of the now-deceased Russian opposition leader. Here's a translation of part of what she said after she learned her husband had died. I would like to call upon all the international community, all the people in the world. We should come together and we should fight against this evil. We should fight this horrific regime in Russia today. This regime and Vladimir Putin should be personally held responsible for all the atrocities they have committed in our country the last year. Thank you. Alexei Navalny's death has further inflamed the tense relationship between NATO countries and Russia. This is aid to Ukraine from the United States has dried up. And as Donald Trump announced, he would encourage Russia to attack NATO countries who did not meet their financial obligations to the alliance, should he once again become U.S. president. Kerry Buck is a former Canadian ambassador to NATO and is now a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. Good morning to you. Good morning. Alexei Navalny's death comes at a particularly tense time between Russia and the West, particularly with the U.S. Um, President Joe Biden said, quote, Putin and his thugs caused the death of Navalny. Kerry, there are sanctions in place against Russia. So what more can or might the U.S. do to punish President Putin and his government for the death of Navalny? Well, there's always room for more sanctions if that's where the international community goes. Um, they've kept some space for more sanctions and used them as a lever uh, against Russia. It hasn't been particularly effective, to be frank. Um, so far, the Western response, U.S. and others' response, has been to condemn the murder of Mr. Navalny and condemn it in pretty um, stark terms. This is good. What Putin has a history of doing is um, making sure that his tracks are covered the Russian regime tracks are covered, so that accountability is very difficult. Attribution of aggressive acts, poisonings, etc., is really hard to attribute. And his aim, Putin's aim, is to delay uh, Western uh, capacity to respond, to delay Western capacity to make decisions. So when President Biden and other leaders came out very early saying this is clearly a murder and it's a murder by uh, Putin's regime, that was really important. Um, and we'll see, you know, when when the next shoe drops, if they indeed move to more sanctions. Hmm. I think, as your previous guest said, the more urgent thing is to make sure that the um, uh, supply of arms to Ukraine um, doesn't dry up. We're waiting a congressional decision on that, I hope, soon. 
um, because Putin is capitalizing on any weakness he sees in the West. Ukrainian, emboldens him. Yeah. Ukrainian President yeah. Volodymyr Zelensky said, look, this, this aid from the U.S., this money for the Ukrainian military is desperately needed. Yeah. Yeah. What, what does it mean if that money continues to be held back? Like, how does this play out? Well, the EU has stepped up and there were some pretty big announcements from them, uh, contributions from them recently, uh, wider aid packages, but including military assistance. And then there was a NATO defense ministers meeting that wrapped up today. And two things happened. There's a US-led process to um, get other allies beyond NATO to contribute uh to Ukraine. So there would have been announcements coming out of that today. Um, and there was also a meeting of the new NATO Ukraine Council with the NATO, uh, with the Ukrainian Defense Minister. And so there were announcements made there um, that were significant. Is it enough to offset the US delaying? Not at all. Hmm. It's pretty crucial that the US unlocks that aid. As a former um, Canadian ambassador to NATO, what would you like to see Canada doing at this point? Well, I think. You know, I think Canada has actually done pretty well from the beginning, and I date the beginning back to 2014, um, and we've occupied some pretty important uh, kind of niches. It's like a division of labor internationally, so different states do what they're particularly good at. We're really good at training, and, um, you know, the Ukrainians have recognized that. We're It's not really us that gives the heavy equipment, the heavy equipment. Um, uh, military equipment to Ukraine. There are others who are better situated to do that. Um, I always want to see Canada doing more, to be frank, with Ukraine because it's in our direct security interests, I think. Uh, and it's also in NATO's interests, which, you know, is something mm. that's pretty important to Canada for a bunch of reasons. The other thing um, in relation to NATO that has happened sort of in the, in the past week, and I'm sure this was discussed at least on the sidelines of the summit meeting, was uh, the comments by former president, U.S. President Trump, who said if he was reelected, he would not defend any NATO nation that did not uh, pay what he called its due. How seriously uh, should we take comments like that? I think we should take it really seriously um, for a few reasons. You know, maybe he's bluffing, but I don't think, although, I mean, personally, I see him as a man without an ideology. And he's bluffed on other foreign policy issues in the past. But on this one, his ideas and his complaints about alliances go back way back to 1987 when he first floated his presidential candidacy. And he's had a consistent message saying, you know, allies who don't pay, it's unfair to the U.S. And then he started when he was president to hint that he wouldn't um, – he wouldn't necessarily allow the U.S. to step in to defend a NATO ally that doesn't pay up. So why is he saying that? I, I don't know. He's, I mean, there are a few options. There are a few reasons why. Maybe he's confused about how NATO works because, you know, NATO countries have made commitments about how much money they'll spend on their own militaries. But it's, it's not a protection racket. It's not money owed to either NATO or the U.S., or he's pushing an extreme form of U.S. isolationism, more extreme than we've ever seen. Or he's saying this because his foreign policy is supportive of Russia and, and not so supportive of NATO allies, which would be a disaster. So, you know, he's hinted before that he wouldn't honor what's called Article 5. That's the collective defense guarantee of NATO. An attack against one ally is the same as an attack against the entire alliance, and the alliance will react. 
Um, but his most recent pronouncements were more extreme than that, uh, inviting Russia to attack an ally um, that doesn't pay up. And I've never heard, I mean, I was looking back through the history and I can't recall something as extreme being said by a U.S. Uh, sitting or, or former president uh, since ever. Hmm. So, yeah, so we should worry. When when he says the dues, the sort of number that he, hmm. he's alluding to is this 2%. Yeah. And as you say, um, after, you know, Russia's annexation of Crimea 10 years ago, NATO members agreed to spend 2% of GDP on defense by 2024. Yeah. Canada is among several NATO members who isn't meeting that 2% carry back. Right. Aside from Trump, there have there has been criticism of Canada not, you know, fulfilling that Two percent. So substantively, how big of a problem is that? Well, it's a big problem. There are a bunch of NATO metrics, and I frankly think that while the two percent of GDP on your own military, it's a it's a very powerful political metric. Um, there are other NATO metrics uh, that are more about you know whether your military is effective because Canada's military is pretty effective. Um, we have capacity problems right now. Um, so the other metrics are around, you know, how much you spend on research and development, what percentage of your military your defense budget is on equipment, uh, enablers, that kind of thing. So um, so the 2% is important. The other NATO met- metrics are important too, but Canada is not meeting many of them. We have had decades of underinvestment in our defense, and it's starting to really cost us more in terms of our uh, foreign policy and our relations with close allies, particularly the particularly the U.S., their complaints are coming, becoming more um, public. Hmm. So we got to do more. Um, you know, we're in a difficult post-pandemic period, right? But I would love to see the government at least, you know, announce a path to a path to 2%. We saw European leaders, after Donald Trump uh, made a statement, you know, a week ago, I think, uh, saying, like, NATO needs to do more. Like, they're nervous, and I think understandably so. What more would you like to see NATO be doing at this point? What kind of contingency plan should it be coming up with? You mean on Ukraine or writ large? At large. Ah, okay. Well, um, you know, NATO two years ago in Madrid adopted what's called the strategic concept, which are really boring words. But uh, what it is, it's like the 10-year vision for what NATO should be worried about and what NATO should do. And it was really interesting because they painted a picture of a world that has become a lot more dangerous and a lot more dangerous for all allies. So they pointed to things. There's, there was new language on the uh, security challenge posed by China. That was really important. It helped align European and American and Canadian positions on China and how much of a threat it was. So NATO's paying more attention to Indo-Pacific. NATO's paying a lot more attention to climate change. Why is that important? Well, for us, our Arctic, we are vulnerable. And as sea ice melts, there's going to be, there already is a lot more interest from China. There will be more interest. There already is interest from Russia. Um, So things that touch directly on Canada's security interests and our security uh, vulnerabilities. Um, They also went through the whole range of other things, new security vectors NATO has to worry about. There's new technologies. We had an indication that uh, Russia was perhaps testing some new space-based weapon, new hypersonic missiles, that kind of thing. Um, And there are new cyber threats too. Hmm. And then there are those threats that are, uh, you know, kind of on the cusp between military and civilian, like disinformation, 
uh, democratic resilience. And you'll see NATO working among allies, but with other international bodies to tackle those security threats. So NATO's got a pretty broad range of things that it security threats it needs to respond to. It uses both military assets, but it's also a political body. So it'll pronounce on um, things, set standards on things or aspirational goals on climate, for instance. Carrie Buck, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Nice talking to you. Carrie Buck is Canada's ambassador and permanent representative to NATO from 2015 to 2018. Okay, let us turn our attention to the classical music world now, where Laura St. John is a force. The violinist started out in London, Ontario, drawing attention and awards as a young kid. In the decades since, she's performed on some of the world's most acclaimed stages with some of the world's most famous orchestras. But Laura's work isn't just about the music she makes. It is also about using her platform to shed light on challenges facing women in her industry. It is a cause that is deeply personal for her, set off by her own experience as a teen at music school where she was sexually assaulted. After 35 years of seeking accountability, Laura did receive an apology. One of her latest efforts to illuminate women's voices and experiences is an album called She, Her, Hers. It's a collection of solo violin works, all written by female composers. I'm so pleased to have Laura St. John and her violin here with me in our studio. Laura, hello. Hi. You are going to perform in just just a moment with a performance from She, Her, Hers. Before we hear it, um, what's the story behind the piece you're about to play and behind the woman who wrote it? Jesse Montgomery is a young composer originally from New York City, New York, born and bred, and she's presently the uh, composer in residence for the Chicago Symphony. And I've just been a big fan ever since I heard her first piece. And so uh, I picked up this uh, great Rhapsody number two that she wrote. She was inspired by Bartok, she said. So, Okay, let's take a listen to it. This is Laura St. John performing Rhapsody number two by Jesse Montgomery live here in our studio.
That is the acclaimed Canadian violinist Laura St. John performing Rhapsody Number no. 2 by Jesse Montgomery here in our studio. Laura, that's just one piece on your album, uh, She, Her, Hers. Where did the, the idea for this project come about from highlighting all female composers? Well, one thing that I do control when I'm playing with orchestra is um, the encore, for example. And I usually was doing something by Bach, and, you know, I kind of thought, wait, this is something that I have a choice about. Why don't I put something by a woman? So I started learning the Eckhart Gramate caprices. She wrote 10 really wonderful violinistic caprices for for solo violin. And then I started thinking, well, there's got to be more of that out there, and, and, and a lot of them are people that I know, friends and acquaintances of mine, and people that I that I highly respect. And some of them are transcriptions from, uh, for example, Valerie Coleman's uh, flute piece, the Mariposa Dance. And Laurie Anderson, you know, I just said, hey, you want to write something? And she said, why don't you take this song and do something with it? I'm, mm. I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> so there's a lot of kind of me in the pieces as well. But um, And I just kind of realized, I've got an album here. You know, let's let's make an album of just one violinist playing female composers. You know, you, you talk about it in a sort of like, in a small way, but this this is pretty big. We don't have this readily accessible to us, right? Albums written of, uh, by composers who are all women. Like what, for you, why was it important beyond just like, hey, let's highlight some female composers? Well, because for years and years, well, actually until very, very recently, uh, women composers haven't been recognized at all. Even those who did write back in the, you know, 18th, 19th centuries were often overshadowed or, you know, their works were were not even published. But recently, uh, people have suddenly said, oh, you know, maybe women actually can, you know, have (laughs) have really creative thoughts and, Imagine and, that. and write music and stuff like that. But if you think about it, I mean, like 50 years ago, there were almost no women even in orchestras. There was almost no women in music, in classical music. And so this is something rather new, which is why most of the people on my album are living and uh, not from past centuries. But it's still a bit of a problem in, uh, in classical music. Actually, it's a very big problem. We are the missing majority. Hmm. So let's talk about one of the women um, that you profile, again, from, from the 20th century. This is uh, Micheline Colomb saint marcou mm-hmm. So a composer from Quebec, worked in the late 60s and 70s, lesser known than many of her male contemporaries. When you were exploring her story, Laura, what did it teach you about the, the, the challenges that female composers were having back then? And back then, we're not talking about that long ago, 60 years ago. Yeah, not even. I mean, I think, well, she died pretty young actually which is which is never a good thing for a composer <laughs> but um she wrote a piece for solo violin that uh, she also wrote a lot for on Maltenou, which is a it's almost like a theremin kind of thing i mean she she was really innovative and she studied in paris and was around in the whole sort of boulez kind of uh, school of 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 that kind of writing and I mean, the pieces that, that Boulez wrote, for example, uh, Anthem for solo violin, are played all over the place all the time and, like, you know, taken very seriously or whatever. And, and her piece for solo violin was never even recorded hmm. by anyone. So I had to, it was really hard to find as well. I just, I knew that she had written one and then I had to, like, sort of ask a bunch of fellow violinists to find the music, you know, it's not even, so it's just, it's like, why is it that hard to appreciate somebody who wrote extremely well 40 years ago, but because she was female, her music isn't even readily available. And so let's talk more about that, because in every industry, 
women have been, you know, in the past, in the dark, in the shadows, not celebrated, not even not even known. You work in the classical world. So how, how would you say it stacks up? Not to do, it's, it's bad whenever women are kept in the shadows or the dark, but like, how does it stack up, especially when it comes to making space for female composers? Well, in composition and conducting, that that is really the, the big place where it's still um, maybe five to ten percent hmm. women. Um, I'm also every every year I'm I'm a Academy member, right? So I vote for the Grammy. So I get to see like the amount of people who, like the four hundred out of which they pick five, right, you know, right, sort of thing. Yeah. And it is not improving, unfortunately, hmm. when it comes to production, when it comes to conducting, when it comes to engineering, when it comes to all sorts of things. And that's not just in classical, it's also in jazz and in pop as well. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. Because I think at this point, we've kind of proven, thanks to um, blind auditions and things like this, that talent is equal among the genders. And the fact that there's still huge parts of our profession, which are 90% male, means that there's a lot of really kind of mediocre dudes out there <laughs> that that have a vested interest in keeping women down. Mm. And that's that whole quote was from a, a Israeli conductor named Talia Ilan. I'm paraphrasing, but she said it so fantastically. And and it's true. I mean, when people are in a position of power, they don't want to give that up. They don't want to say, oh, look, you know, this this person actually does this twice as well and has half the half the recompense for it. So mm. and not just that, not just the missing majority in basically in conducting, in composition, also in principles in orchestras. There are some exceptions, but none of them are the big orchestras from mm. the big cities. It's always 20% or less women. You know, that's disheartening because then then women, like a young girl going to a concert, doesn't see herself on stage, or, or at least she does, but in the back of the second violins, you know? Yeah, and then you aspire to be second violin because you don't see yourself reflected in the first violin. Well, another problem, which is, in my opinion, much bigger because it's what I know, is that um, abuse is rampant in the classical music world. There aren't that many worlds where you have very, very young children and people who are deified. You know, like you have these kind of gurus of, of, of violin teaching, and it creates a lot of, of child abuse, actually, and a lot of just imbalance of power. So let's talk more about this, because um, you're not just an advocate for, for women in classical music. You're an activist who's speaking out, and have already spoken out just now, but let's talk about it more, about discrimination and abuse in your industry. It, um, of course... Um, was shaped in part by your own experience, um, which you're good to talk about? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's no time to be shy now. I've been, yeah. <laughs> been sort of screaming from the rooftops yeah. for when four you, years. When you were 14, um, you went to the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia back in the 90s. And you went to the school's dean at the time with two friends and said that your private teacher at the time, uh, Yasha Brodsky, had sexually abused you on multiple occasions. Yes. What was the response you received when you came forward? Uh, it was kind of mockery. He sort of laughed and said, well, what do you want me to do about it? And my friend said, well, you've got to change your teacher. And he said, no, we don't do that here at Curtis. That doesn't happen. And, you know, of course, I was I was crying. I mean, I remember the, the thing very well, but it was hard for me to speak. And I said, I just, that's all I want. I just want that. And he said, no. And then my, my guy friend, who was a little older and a guy, so I just maybe easier to say something like that. He said, well, then we're going to go to the police. Mm. And at that point, the guy, the dean, Robert Fitzpatrick, he laughed, actually. And he said, well, who do you think they'll believe? Some kid or somebody who's been with this institution for decades? 
And so, I mean, the the abuse and the rape was actually it carried out in a in a rather horrific manner because um, it was done under threat because Curtis is an all scholarship school, and my brother was also a student there, and he was very happy there, and I knew he was happy there. Wow! And so the teacher used that against me, saying, "I will kick out your brother if you don't do this." You were fourteen so, at the time. I was fourteen. Yeah. So it's it's very very evil thing to do. So there you were. You. You know, you have this burning passion for music on one hand and, and skill and talent. And at the same time, you're having your abuse claim swept aside um, within that very context that you loved and by people you were working alongside with. You are 14 years old. And so as you're as a teenager sitting there going, I got to weigh these two things. I want to keep doing this. But look what's happened. How are you, how are you weighing that? I think it... Overnight, it kind of became all about survival. Like instead of, I had dreams of, you know, of being a composer, being a conductor. Like I was interested in everything at that school. I would go to oboe master classes. Like I played in every conductor's workshop. And then, and then things changed. And and suddenly I just, you know, I had trouble working. I, it's really traumatizing that sort of thing. And then especially knowing that I would have to see that person an hour alone every week. I mean, it was just. I was losing my mind, basically, which is why I went into the dean. So eventually they did switch my teacher, but, um, you know, I still had to memorize his schedule so I wouldn't run into him. And, you know, I mean, they didn't do anything to him. They moved me. And this is what continues to happen at all these institutions. Nothing is done to the perpetrator. They just get the victim out of the way. (laughs) You ended up leaving. You could have put this behind you. I'm not suggesting you should have or could have in a real way, but you could have sort of like that happened at the Curtis Institute movement, but you didn't. You went back to Curtis officials. You kept saying, look, this is what happened to me, um, but to no avail. What was kind of driving you, Laura, to keep up the fight? Well, I guess it, it, in in 2013 was uh, before I went public in 2019. That was the last time I did I did speak to them, and um, that was because the dean um, wrote on a very public classical music blog that he was some sort of saint and protector of children. Um, it was such blatant lies because, of course, I remembered very well what he did to me, and um, I wrote a nine-page letter to Curtis, told the director of Curtis to give it to the board and everything, and and detailed exactly what was done and what that dean had done. And I said, you shut that guy up. Hmm. Um, so all they did was commission like a totally sham report. And finally, you know, there was kind of a zeitgeist happening in, in 2018. And there were some other articles that came out about the Cleveland Orchestra Concert Master, about Charles Dutrois here in Montreal, you know. And I finally said to myself, you know, this is this is a time that I think I don't have to just survive anymore. You know, I finally, like, if I never play another note, I won't starve. And I had to know that before I could come out about it because, you know, th- it's a huge story. It's, you know, it was at the time big school little girl. Yeah. Now it's big school big girl, but what's going to happen, you yeah. know, is girl big enough to survive this kind of thing? And... I don't know. It was, uh, it was, it, it's definitely been a journey. So during this, like, sort of the Me Too context, uh, sort of emerging, like, in the late, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, you decide, I'm going public. And 2019, the Philadelphia Inquirer tells your story. And what falls out from that, the consequence of that, Curtis hires an outside law firm to conduct an independent investigation, which found your story, Laura St. John, to be credible. 
The school board of trustees apologized, releasing a statement. I'll just read part of it. It says, uh, the board recognizes and profoundly regrets the incalculable physical and emotional toll that Miss St. John suffered as a result of her Curtis experience. The school fell short in its attempts to respond to her concerns and instead reinforced the perception that it did not care about what happened to her. This is many, many years later. 35 years later, yeah. And um, they were forced to make that apology, so... You know, to me, it really smacks of, oh, we're sorry. Sorry this happened to you. You know, I mean, the, they were forced to get an outside law firm because I wrote an open letter saying, mm. you know, this article came out and you've done nothing. So do something. And when my article came out, the director, his name is Roberto Diaz, he tried to shut up his entire alumni by saying, don't talk to the press, don't talk to anybody. And, you know, of course, that backfired. So. He apologized to his alumni and then apologized for his apology and, you know, to everyone but me until finally, you know, the report came out. Yeah. And it is public. Since then, you have continued to speak out with many other women in classical music um, who have shared, sadly, similar experiences to yours, had similar experiences to yours. We know that um, women are abused and assaulted across the board, every industry, every place, every country, you know, so on and so forth. But is there something, a context here that you think I should understand, our listeners should understand about the classical world that allows these kinds of abuses to, to happen? Yeah, I, well, just, just when that article came out, I just, I started hearing from so many people, so many women, and women who, some of them ended up talking to me, which has become a documentary, and some of them can't talk and they can't come forward, but they're thanking me for, for being one who can. And I think it kind of comes from, as we've seen also in, in gymnastics and that sort of thing, when you have people who are looked at as gods and then these very young people, like you can't just sort of pick up the violin at age 16 and mm. become a soloist. It, just, it doesn't happen, or the piano or the cello. So particularly those instruments, like as opposed to voice, where you can actually start becoming a singer at 20. Um, there's so many possibilities for abuse. And it's ignored, consistently ignored, because the institutions would much rather protect their bigwig fancy men than they would their students. Mm. And that is happening to this day. You're working on a documentary, you just mentioned that, um, showcasing some of the stories uh, of some of the women. How do you hope to further the conversation? What do you hope to achieve by bringing these voices out in the open? Well, I think their stories should be heard. I also did it, most of the filming, just myself. So it was just me with like two cameras speaking to these women. And I think it made a difference because it is so hard to talk about these things. Mm. And if it's just somebody, you know, without a sound guy and without a lighting guy or whatever, um, speaking to you who knows what you've been through, then I, I think I think it was... It was, first of all, cathartic for a lot of these women to, to tell their stories and, and also easier for them to tell it to me because, mm. because I've been so open and, and so, uh, you know, I shouting from the rooftops or whatever. And, and I think in a way that somehow has inspired some people to, to be able to speak. And yeah, these, these stories have to be heard and, and, and precautions have to be taken. The one place which I sort of see as a little beacon of hope is the Amsterdam Conservatory. The head of that place has you know, gone above and beyond to make sure that, that abuse is absolutely gotten out of his school. What have they done? Um, the new conservatory has glass doors, and there are no locks in the entire conservatory. No teacher is allowed to teach at home. 
everybody has a study buddy at the beginning and there's team teaching so that no one person has complete control over a student. Hmm. So what it is basically it's getting rid of the, the the power divide or as much as possible obviously. You know, it's still a teacher student but um you know, not teaching at home. Curtis did that last year and Amsterdam did it in 2007. So, you know, just they're not even really trying hmm. I I find. You know, you were talking about making this documentary and how people felt comfortable talking to you as a survivor. And, you know, when when I'm hearing you, and I think sometimes when listeners hear you, um, because you've been public, maybe there's an assumption that, like, you're fine. You're doing, she's good. Like, she's good. This is behind her. How are you? <laughs> well, it's it's tough. I mean, I'm, I'm, and also, whenever I would sort of interview someone for my film, I would tell them, this is not a walk in the park. It's not going to be when this thing comes out. I had people commenting after I came out about my abuse at 14 years old, let me repeat. I was doing it for publicity. But there are, you know, there are trolls like that. Mm. And it's worth it. Hard, but worth it. It's been a long road. It has. And um, and given your story, Laura, and, and what we've been talking about, what, what do you want them to think about? I want them to think about how much I've gone through to be able to be on that stage. So much more than your average dude who's going to be there the next night. You know, and I want them to think about how it is kind of amazing that I'm still in this field. Um, A lot of the women I spoke to are not. They no longer have music or even listen to music, some of them. Like, um, I'm happy for myself that I'm still in the field and I think it's because I started so young like Mm. music was so much part of me that it was not quite abused out of me very close and you know two of the people that I also discussed in my film are no longer with us and I had suicide attempts as well I mean it's just it's it's a terrible thing to be abused at any age and I want them to think about that and to to think about like well why is this still happening? Why is she saying it's still happening? Why can't we stop this? And and then, of course, you know, there's music. That's how I express myself. Yeah. Um, only recently have I started, you know, screaming from rooftops. But um, music is my, my way of, of expression. And I just, I don't know. I hope people will start listening. And I hope institutions will start listening. Or that the demand from people will bring them to some sort of retribution for what they've done over the years. I'm going to use all the wrong words. Um, Maybe hackneyed words, but they're meaningful, I think. Um, It takes a lot to stand up when a lot of voices are trying to keep you down. So thank you for all your courage these years um, and your bravery and um, just helping others. You know, you can't move ahead in the world if you can't see yourself in someone. So thank you. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks very much. Yeah. You're going to perform another piece for us. So... um, what will this one be, and what does this one mean to you? This is actually my own arrangement of Schubert's Death and the Maiden. Schubert wrote Death and the Maiden twice, first as a song when he was a young man, and then he turned that theme into a second movement for his quartet, number 14, when he was uh, when he knew he was dying, actually. And just the sort of the theme is is something that speaks a lot to me, because I think it the, the whole trope of death and the maiden and, and, you know, taking away the maiden before her time is something that kind of resonates with mm. uh, with me and with people who have, you know, endured what I have as well, which was getting 
kind of innocence taken away at a very young age by by very old men who were close to death. <laughs> so, so I uh, yeah. So I like. I mean, the the Schubert stuff is just it's so it's so beautiful. And so I took uh, parts of the song, parts of the quartet, and made it made it so that I could do it all by myself. Here she is making it her own. This is Laura St. John performing her arrangement of Death and the Maiden by Franz Schubert live in our studio. Thank you. 
That's Canadian violinist Lara St. John. If you want to hear more of her performing live in our studio, you can go to our website, cbc.ca slash Sunday. That is it for this week on The Sunday Magazine. Our producers are Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, Pete Mitten, and Rondé Williams. Our senior producer is Howard Goldenthal. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you so very much for lending us your ear. Till next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.